morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. We're always amazed, or at least we should be amazed, to be in the presence of our Savior as we gather for worship every Sunday. Here at Grace Bible Church, we don't believe that you need to go to church to be in His presence. Uh, As the psalmist asked the Lord, where can I flee from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there as well. Uh, We know that God's Spirit dwells everywhere. No, we don't think you have to go to church to experience His presence. You don't even need to go to church to confess your sins. The Apostle John tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, we're not bound to a location Uh, In in confessing our sins, we're not bound to confess our sins to a priest. We are to confess our sins to the great high priest who forgives us and the one who is able to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He can hear you even from the darkest of places. And really, you have to recognize that no earthly priest could ever do that. No, we don't come to church for those things. You see, we come to church to exalt God together with the saints. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, that, he, that we are to consider how to stimulate ourselves, or stimulate one another, that is, to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to come then to 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 be together with the saints, to exalt our Lord, and to hear the the Word of God explained so that we can grow with respect to salvation. That's 1 Peter 2.2. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We come to church also to be equipped for for God's work in our family, in our church, and and in the community around us. That's Ephesians 4.12. Uh, that, that he gave some as apostles or some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service to the building up the, the body of Christ. And we do these things so that we can then go out. So we're here in the body of Christ. We exalt God. We hear the exposition of the word. We are equipped. So we do these things so that we can go out and evangelize the lost. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. Specifically, he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That is the gospel. So then we are ambassadors for Christ. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Make, go and make disciples of all the nations. So if you've been here a while, you then recognize these as our pillars, right? The pillars of Grace Bible Church's philosophy of ministry. We exist to exalt God exposit the scriptures, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. That's what we do as a church. We exalt God. You may, you may, you, you may have listened to these in our, in our pillar series, and you, if you've listened to that, you know these work together. We exalt God by learning about Him and His plan through the exposition of the scriptures. As such, we are spiritually and practically equipped to serve the Lord and to evangelize the lost. That's it in a nutshell. The ultimate goal The ultimate goal of us as a church is to call the lost to follow King Jesus. That's the ultimate goal. As we make followers of Jesus by preaching the gospel, we just repeat the process over and over. 
We follow the instructions on the back of a shampoo bottle which says, lather, rinse, repeat. And if you keep following that, lather, rinse, repeat, we just keep doing that until the Lord returns, right? We just keep sharing the gospel. People come in, they get equipped, they go share the gospel, and it repeats over and over and over until the Lord returns. That's how the church is built. Now, you may ask where we get this model for this type the model for this type of evangelism. Well, we clearly see it in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus and in the ministry of His disciples. Well, today we're returning to our study of Matthew. We have titled this series, The King and His Glory, and we've made it to a critical text where we will see Jesus' call to His disciples. We will see the call to follow the King. Now, I hope to show you that Jesus' effectual call of believers to faith in Christ has not changed even up to this day. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we pray thanking you this morning for our worship time together. Father, may we enjoy that. May we enjoy our time together in fellowship. May we enjoy our time together in Worship and song, as we've done earlier, thank you for the worship team leading us in that way. Father, we pray, thanking you for the reading of your word and the prayer, and now we turn our attention to the exposition of the word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew 4, 18-22, if you'd like to turn in your scripture, that would be our passage this morning. I just want to remind you, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the mark of the beginning of his public ministry. Verse 18, let's pick up there. Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two, bro- two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I'm always amazed at grand stories of conversion. Charles Spurgeon was on his way to a certain place of worship, but God sent a snowstorm that forced him to turn aside down a side street and enter a small primitive Methodist chapel. There may have been 15 people present, and the regular minister was snowed in and was unable to attend. He was replaced by a layman who had very little knowledge of the word, but he was smart enough to stick to his text, which he repeated over and over. The text was Isaiah 45, 22, which said, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The man had so few words to say that he turned his attention directly to Charles Spurgeon and said, Young man, you look very miserable. To this, Charles Spurgeon has remarks, Well, I did. I did look miserable. But I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow struck right home. And the man continued, 
And you will always be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. And if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, Young men, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. And in Charles's words, I saw at once the way of salvation. Those few words from that stammering man were exactly what young Charles needed to hear at that moment. And he was miraculously saved. This reminds me of the words of A.W. Tozer, thinking of this man in the pulpit. The layman never need to think of his, hum- of his humbler task as being inferior to that of his minister. Let every man abide in the calling wherein he is called, and his work will be sacred as the work of the ministry. End quote. This man was able to stand in a pulpit. His, his preaching led to the salvation of a man named Charles Spurgeon. Now there's a much, another much lesser account of salvation that amazes me as well. This story has been told uh, by Ron Procis in his book of preaching illustrations. He tells of a story of an American preacher who once preached in the pulpit of Robert Murray McShane. He asked if anyone knew McShane personally. This was after his ministry was over. He was met with no response. Apparently all had died or moved away since McShane's day. At last, in the doorway of the church, he met an old Scotsman, 90 years of age. The old man said that years ago he had heard McShane preached. So the visitor asked the text, but the old man couldn't remember. But he was then asked to tell something about the sermon, but again, he couldn't remember. He was then asked to recount something about his manner in the pulpit, but he could not. But he said, there is one thing I can tell you. I will never forget when I was a mere lad by the roadside one day. McShane came by and stopped by me. He walked over to the side of the fence where I stood and said, Jamie, I'm going to see your sick sister. I'm afraid she's not going to live. Then he put his hand on my head and said as the tears ran down his face, Jamie, lad, I'm concerned about your soul. I want want you to give your heart to Christ. I must have you saved. Then the old Scotsman added, I have forgotten everything else about McShane, but I can still, I can feel those fingers on my head yet. Church, there's literally millions of conversion stories like this. It is profound when Jesus calls a man or woman to salvation. Perhaps you have a personal story of salvation that is similar. Well, this morning, we're going to see the call of Jesus' first disciples. And what we're going to see is, as we go through the text, as we go through the study of Matthew, we're going to see that they were just ordinary men, just like you and me. But Jesus called them to follow him to a profound life and ministry that would literally change the world. In the the words of John MacArthur, they were 12 perfectly ordinary men unexceptional men, end quote. Now in this study, in Matthew 4, 18-22, Matthew describes Jesus' call of his first disciples to follow him. As we study this text, we must, you must consider, that is, that his call is first, personal. Number two, paradigm shifting. Number three, purposeful. Number four, powerful. And number five, it is pressing. 
Let's dive into the first consideration. You must consider that his call is personal. Look down at your text in Matthew 4.18. It says, Now as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Now at this point, Jesus has arrived and he has settled in Capernaum. Capernaum was a small fishing village on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. According to the text, he was walking by the sea or the lake, and he saw Simon Peter and Andrew. They had already met him at the Jordan when they were with John the Baptist. Now at this point, I want you to understand that the call to follow Christ came in stages or phases. Now I think it would be helpful for us to briefly understand or for me to briefly explain those phases. The various phases uh, of, of Jesus' calling, uh, it comes in, in time, if you will. Now, as you read the, the Gospels, you'll come across several accounts of Jesus calling his men to be his disciples. By comparing the different perspectives, the differing perspectives of the Gospel writers, we can piece together five different phases of Jesus' calling of his twelve. And when we piece them together, we will see that these calls, again, came in phases, or, or you may even say waves. Now, Matthew, like the other gospel writers, uh, emphasizes the call that best suits the, his theme of the gospel. Now, you may recall that the Apostle John gives us the, the record of the year of transition between the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. He recounts, he recounts the first phase of Jesus' call. He recorded this initial call to the disciples in John 1:35 through 51. Now, this was a this was this first call was the call to salvation. It was the, the call to have faith in Christ. This, this is clearly and graphically shown in Jesus' call to Nathaniel in John 1:47. Just listen to John's account. And John, John says, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said about him, truly. Behold, truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, From where do, you come, where do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Wow. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. What, a, what an incredible account of this first phase of Jesus' calling. Now let's look at the second phase of his calling. Back in our, in our passes, Matthew provides this second call or phase. This is the call to, to witness or evangelize. In Matthew 4, 19, he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now we should note that the disciples didn't permanently leave their jobs after these first two calls which leads to the third phase of Jesus' call. Luke gives us the account of this third call in Luke 5, 1 through 11. At that time, at the time of his encounter with Jesus, the disciple, or their account, encounter with Jesus, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, were fishing again. You see, they had not left their jobs. At that time, Jesus recalled, renewed his call to be fishers of men. In Luke 5, 10, he says, Do not fear, from now on, you will be catching men. Now, as a result of that meeting, the disciples left everything. This is Luke 5.11. They left everything, and they followed him. Now, this leads to the fourth phase of their calling. 
In this phase, he singled them out as the twelve, the twelve as apostles. That, that's recorded in Mark 3, 13 through 15. And in... Lost my place for a second there. All of a sudden, it just went... Oop. That's why it's happening. Okay, Mark 3, 13 through 15, and Luke 6, 12 through 16. This is when he appointed the twelve to be with him, and he sent and to send them out to preach and to have authority over the over the demons or to cast out demons, that is. Now there's a fifth phase, again, where he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every sickness. That's, in, that's recorded in Matthew 10.1. Now, that was the fifth phase. Now, the sixth phase of his call, I would argue, and that's kind of a question mark, I said there was five in the Gospels, but I would argue there's actually a sixth when you look at the apostles. Uh, they, I would argue that, that again, this, there's another phase yet to come when he sent his Holy Spirit to dwell within them. At that time, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, this would be Acts chapter 1-8. He empowered them to go forth and preach the gospel to the nations. He says, he says in Acts 1-8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the end of the earth. Then after he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. So I would argue that that they were given power at Pentecost to go and preach the gospel so that the, the, the gospel would ta- be taken to the ends of the earth. And I would also argue, then, that Jesus' Jesus's call to every believer follows a similar pattern. Now, we will see this more later, but for now, for the moment, I just want you to consider that His call is personal. It's personal. It's personal because Jesus called them by name. Look back at your text in Matthew 4.18. So he was walking by the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. Now we know that Peter went on to be the leader, uh, to be the leader among the apostles. He is mentioned in every major event in Jesus' life and ministry. He will be the one who steps forward later, after the Holy Spirit comes upon them, he'll step forward and preach on Pentecost. Now, we don't know nearly as much about his brother and Andrew, but we do know that both Peter and Andrew were fishermen. Now look down at verse 21, Matthew 4, 21. And going on, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. And the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Now, this James is not to be confused with James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote, who wrote the, the letter of James in the New Testament. This James and John, his brother, are called the sons of Zebedee, which identifies them. Now, we also know that they were, we, they were also, that is, fishermen. Now, I want you to notice. Here's what I want you to notice. Matthew lets us know exactly who Jesus saw when he was walking. He saw Andrew, and he saw Simon, who was called Peter. And and clearly we know that he recognized them from their first meeting. But it's much more than that. 
It's much more than that. It wasn't just that Jesus recognized them from their first meeting. Jesus knew them from eternity past. They were chosen in Him from the foundation of the world. Later in John 15, verse 16, just before going to the cross, Jesus told His disciples, You did not choose Me, but I chose you, and appointed that you would go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would abide, so that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give it to you. This fits with Paul's words in Ephesians 1.4. He chose us from in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. And beloved church, we see this scenario play out over and over in Scripture. You see, God always chooses. He told Abraham to go forth from your, from your land to the land which He would show him. That's Genesis 12.1. It wasn't Abraham that chose, right? It was God. He told Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he told Moses to go to Egypt to free his people from slavery. It wasn't God. Moses was just walking alone, minding his own business. God is the one that chose. He anointed David as king over, it, over his people. 1 Samuel 16, right? 1 Samuel 16 says that God chose David. Not because of the way he looked, he cho- but God chose him. David was minding his own business, tending the sheep, and, and God chose him through Samuel. He sent Isaiah to an obstinate people. Isaiah 6. Who chose who in that scenario? God chose Isaiah, right? He appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So it wasn't Paul who chose. It was God who chose. It was the Lord Jesus in this case specifically. Church, that is the testimony of Scripture. The testimony of Scripture is that God chooses and when we, read, when we read the pages of Scripture, we don't, we don't struggle with that, do we? I, I, you don't struggle with the fact that David was chosen, or Abraham was chosen, or Moses was chosen, or Joshua was chosen, or Paul was chosen, or John. You don't struggle with that. So why in the world do you struggle with the doctrine of election when it comes to ourselves? You know, people only... Here's the truth. People only struggle with the doctrine of election because they don't want... That because they want to keep their autonomy and salvation. They want to be the reason why they're saved. I made a decision. But, but that's not the overwhelming witness of Scripture. God sovereignly and personally calls people to Himself. And if you are in Christ, if you are sitting here today and you are saved, He knows you personally and He called you by name. He knew everything about you right down to the very hairs of your head being numbered. He knows everything about you. And He saved you before the foundation of the world. He chose you, that is, before the foundation of the world. And He saved you in time when it became His time and according to His own sovereign will. That's the truth. If you believe Scripture. Now, I will say, I will say, I do think it's appropriate to preach the gospel and call for someone to make a decision. I do think so. 
I think, it's, I think that's the tension that's there. I think it's appropriate, but we have to say, I mean, because God said, to, I mean, as an example, with Moses and with all these things, I mean, he did say, I mean, Moses, go to Egypt, right? I mean, Moses had to make a decision to go to Egypt in real time. So I do, I do see those things working together. In the words of A.W. Tozer, however deep the mystery, however many the paradoxes involved, and I don't, it's interesting because I, I, I'll stop there and say, I don't see it necessarily as a paradox. I see it as, a, as tension. There's tension there between man's decision and God's choosing. But I, there's tension there, but I think that both stand true. But he goes on to say, it is still true that men become saints not at their own whim, but by sovereign calling, end quote. Beloved, if you are in Christ, He knows your name. He knows you by name. I, I, and, and it's important to Him. I, I love our Lord's words in Isaiah 43. Now in context, He's speaking to Israel, but I think we can apply it personally. He says, do not fear. This is Isaiah 43.1. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I think we can claim that is true for us if we're in Christ. Now we've seen the first consideration. You must consider that his call is personal. Let's dive into the second one. You must consider that his call is paradigm shifting. Paradigm shifting. Look at verse 19. Matthew 4.19. He said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But let's look at that word follow me or that command follow me. And I want you to see that answering the call to follow me will cost you everything. Now notice, again, he says, follow me. This literally means come after me or come behind me. Most of the major translations, I didn't find any translation that called it or said anything other than the command, follow me. Now, this command is packed with significance for the, for the disciples and for us. At that time, the disciples were living, they were just normal folks. We talked about that early when, I, when we began. They were just normal folks who were just trying to scratch out a living. They couldn't have known the full extent of how Jesus' call would change their lives. Just like, just like the, that, that, the call, their understanding of how God, just like the call is progressive, that is, their understanding of how God would use them would be progressive. Now, as we look through the phases of the call, we saw that they didn't recognize the permanence of that call until later. So you got to remember, it was progressive for them. We know from the rest of the, of the gospel accounts that Jesus' call includes everything about their lives. In Matthew 10, Jesus began to tell his disciples the cost of following him. And he told them things that would shock our sensibilities. He told them, he who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And if that's not enough, in Matthew 10, 38, he says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. In Matthew 16, later, uh, he revealed that he was the son, of the, man, uh, the son of man in Daniel 7 who would be given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, and that all peoples and nations and men of every tongue might serve him. Then, at that point, he told the disciples that they would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
That's Matthew 16, 19. Now, that might have caused them to burst with pride, right? They're going to be given the, I mean, can you imagine being told by the Lord, you're going to be given the kings, the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But after telling them that amazing revelation, he then began to tell them that he, would, he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And, and then Peter, if you remember famous, famous interaction, Peter began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You know, you're not going to suffer, because I'm going to make sure you don't. That's what Peter's saying. That's when Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan, you're a stumbling block for, to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but you're setting your mind on man's interest. Now, this is the context for the next verse in Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits, forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Beloved, the call to follow Christ has not changed. It is the call to give up your life and give it all to Him. That's the call. I wish somebody would say amen. In the words of Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. He bids him come to die. That may sound radical to you, and if it does, I would submit that you've bought into this world too much. I love the sweet words of the hymn, I Surrender All. You know that, word? You know that hymn? All to Jesus I surrender. All to Thee I freely give. I will ever love and trust You in Your presence daily live. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Oh, may that be our prayer. May that be the, the longing of our heart to surrender all to Him. But I also want you to know that answering the call will change the direction of your life. Many of, us, many, many of us, if not all, come to Christ thinking that we'll just add Him to our comfortable lives, right? We're just going to take we have our life, and you know we're Americans. We have all the things we want. Well, we don't. Well, maybe we don't have all the things we want, but we're going to add him to that life, and it's just going to make things better, right? Kind of the Joel Osteen theology, if you will. We want comfort, and we want him to give us more comfort. When we're when we're young, we may not have as much money or other stuff, so we may see him as a way to get those things. For me personally, this is my own testimony, I tried to pursue career while following Christ, but for me it became a fool's errand. I wanted an amazing career, I wanted to climb to the top of the ladder, but, and I wanted to, to follow Christ, and I came to realize I couldn't have both. You know, those choices, by the way, are between you and the Lord, but you must recognize that Christ doesn't want just part of you. He wants all, the whole person. He wants all of you. The whole person. Christ called His disciples to give up everything and follow Him. And He's still making that call today. Look down at, 
at Matthew 4.20 and Matthew 4.22. Look at them in tandem. It says in 4.20, And immediately they left their nets and followed Him. 4.22, And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Him. Here's the question. We know from the testimony of Scripture, we know that these men answered the call. The question is, will you? So answering the call changes your paradigm. It completely changes your paradigm. It changes your paradigm because it will cost you everything and it will change your direction. Well, we've seen the first two considerations. His call is personal and his call is paradigm shifting. Let's look at the third consideration. You must consider that his call is purposeful. It's purposeful. Answering the call will change your focus in life. Notice in your text, Matthew 4.19, I will make you fishers of men. You know, we tend to think of fishing because we're in America and this is the type of fishing. We tend to think it as, as hook and line type that is prevalent today. Modern fishermen will also use nets, and especially in commercial fishing operations. But just like today and in, in Jesus' day, there were three types of fishing. That hook and line fishing was used. They would also use a large dragnet between two boats in, in deep water, but they would also cast a throw net from shallow water as they were standing in the water near the shore. As Jesus walked by, Peter and Andrew were casting a net from near to shore, near the shore. So they were using that 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 third type of fishing. The Greek term for that type of net is related to our term amphibious. This English adjective describes something related to land and water. And so basically, this type of net was used while one stood at or near the water's edge and cast into deeper water away from the shore. Now, Peter, James, and John were fishermen. This was their vocation in life. Said another way, fishing was their focus. You know, it's, it's funny, really, how we come to be identified by our vocation. Sometimes our names even reflect the vocations of our ancestors, like the bakers. You know, the bakers probably somewhere down the line there was a baker that, that became known as the bakers. So you get that. So if you're a doctor, what do you become known as? The doc, right? The doctor. If you're a plumber, you're known as a plumber. It, 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 for me, I was an engineer, a structural engineer. I still think of myself in that way, yet now I'm a pastor. Well, these men were fishermen. Now, you, we should note that anytime things got rough for the disciples, they tended to return to fishing. After the resurrection, because that's what they identified themselves as. Peter and some, after the resurrection, Peter and some of the other disciples went back fishing. That's John 21.3. Well, Jesus took these men and He changed their occupation. He changed their identity, if you will. And He made them fishers of men. They, he made them His first partners in ministry. And I love, if you think about it, I love that he didn't need them to accomplish the job. Did he, did he need them? No, he didn't need them. He could have proclaimed the gospel by himself. He has the power to save. Uh, he doesn't need us that way. It's, the gospel is not dependent upon man. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the, to the Greek. I happen to believe that Jesus could make rocks and donkeys preach the gospel if he wanted to. 
I, 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 he could absolutely do that. I mean, Luke 19.40, Jesus said, I tell you, if these were silent, the people that were, were praising him, the stones would cry out. In, in Numbers 22, he op- Yahweh opened the mouth of a donkey. So, so he doesn't need us, no, and yet he uses us. What a wonderful, amazing thing that, it, that that's true. Yet he intended here to use his disciples to preach the gospel. He used common fishermen. What an amazing thing. He used common fishermen to proclaim the greatest message in the world. Now I want you to recognize then that he didn't choose the Jewish religious establishment in Jerusalem. Now that demonstrates that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. He, he, the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may abolish the things that are so that no flesh may boast before God. By the I mean, wow. That's, that's by the way, that's 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29. So I think I'm so smart, right? He doesn't need me. He doesn't need me and he doesn't ultimately need you. But he uses us. What an amazing testimony. Church, Jesus invited his disciples on the greatest fishing expedition the world has ever known. He's still still inviting us on that same expedition. He's still inviting us to preach the gospel to the world. In in Paul's words in Romans 10, 15, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim good news of good things. We've been given the mandate to preach, to, to preach the gospel, to make disciples of the nations. God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation so that we are ambassadors for Christ. As if God is pleading through us, we are able to beg on His behalf, on the behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. What a gift to be a part of that ministry. You know, as we sit here, he didn't call everyone to full-time ministry. But you can still be an evangelist. He did call you to let your light shine among men. He did call you to teach your children about his ways. If you don't ever lead anyone to the Lord other than your children, you've won a great battle, a victory. If you don't lead anyone to the Lord other than your spouse... You are an amazing, amazingly successful evangelist. I mean, he's called you to do what you do based on what he wants you to do, and you don't have to do any more. It's not like you have to go preach the gospel to the, to the to thousands. Spurgeon has said, for each of us there is a special vocation in which we can follow Christ. I do not believe that all of you would be following him if you were to attempt to preach. Even Christ never attempted to do what his father did not intend him to do. A man once asked to officiate as lawyer, a lawyer and judge, but he replied, who made me a judge and divider over you? One, one beauty of Christ's life was that he kept to his calling and did not go beyond his commission. And you will be wise if you do the same, end quote. Spurgeon has also said it has come to to be a dreadfully common belief in the Christian church that the only man who has a call 
is the man who devotes all his time to what is called the ministry. Whereas all of Christian service is ministry, and every Christian has a call to some kind of ministry or, or another, in quotes. So you don't have to be a full-time pastor or full-time missionary or all those things to, be, uh, to serve the Lord in those ways. Having said that, some of you may be called into further ministry. In the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy, Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. See, I, I urge you to walk in wisdom and in patience and not, not in a, spirit, a fear, spirit of fear and timidity. If you are in a position where God is calling you into the ministry, He will search you in ways that you cannot understand. I love the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I think the calling of a minister, a pastor, the greatest calling in the world, there is the greatest calling in the world. There is nothing I know of that is comparable or comparable to watching the Holy Spirit dealing with people, searching them, examining them, revealing truth to them while you watch their growth and their development, in quotes. Whatever the Lord is calling you to, do it with gusto. Do it with all your might. Beloved, when Jesus calls a man or a woman, he has a great purpose in mind. It doesn't matter who you are. That purpose may not seem grand to us at the time. May not seem grand to us at the time. But just think about the man who preached the gospel to Charles Spurgeon. Think about that guy. Think about his time in heaven. He will be a hero in heaven because he won so many souls to Christ. Think about that. Think about that. Well, we've seen the first considerations. His call is three considerations. His call is personal, paradigm shifting, and purposeful. Let's dive into the fourth consideration. I want you to briefly look at Matthew 4.20 and see that his call, you, I want you to consider that his call is powerful. His call is powerful. Again, look at 4.20. I want you to notice that, and I want you to notice their response to Jesus' call. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now look, look down at 22. And immediately they left their boat and their father and they followed him. Church, I'll submit to you that these men had no other choice but to leave their vocation and their families to follow him. Again, that was his sovereign choice. Uh, going back to Matthew, or going back to, I'm sorry, Moses, and going back to uh, all, all the, the men and women that we see in Scripture that God has used, they did not have a choice, ultimately. Ultimately. Now, in time, yes. Now, you may say, well, this applies to Jesus' hand-picked disciples. But I tell you this, it's true no matter who, from the least to the greatest in the kingdom, it'll be true that if Jesus calls a man or a woman to follow him, they will obey. John Calvin has said, obedience is the end of our calling. You know, and you may say, well, wait a minute, people deny him all the time. I would submit to you that wasn't a true call. I can attest to you, we have no other choice but to obey. No other choice but to obey. Believe me, when I was called into the ministry, I tried my best to say no. Now, we're talking about salvation, but 
I tried my best to say no, and I can promise you that that did not work out very well. You know that story. The same can be said for salvation. In the words of D.A. Carson, the call or calling of God is always effective. Underline that word, bold it, always effective. Those who are called by God are truly saved. I saw this quote from Steve Lawson floating around social media a few days ago. And I think it fits here nicely. I love this. I can, just hear John, I can just hear Steve Lawson say it. Jesus does not merely stand knocking at the door of your heart. He blows the door off its hinges, enters, and he says, you are mine. End quote. I didn't say it like Steve Lawson would. First off, I don't have that high voice. <laughs> Beloved, don't mistake that God calls all believers in a similar way. Now, it, your calling may not have been as profound, but He always calls the dead to rise, and He always makes us alive in Christ. Then He pro progressively calls us to more and more specific and ever-expanding service. The true believer can't say no to what He is doing in their life. The true believer can't say no to what he's doing in their life. He, we can't say no because his call is powerful beyond all that we can fathom. The, the Apostle Paul calls it the surpassing greatness of his power. I mean, he stacks adjectives on top of each other to try to get the readers, or try to get the people in Ephesus to understand that he says it's the surpassing greatness of his power, and he talks about the working of the might of his strength. I mean, stacking adjectives because it's so hard for the human intellect to even partially grasp the power of God. Christian, this is the God we serve. Unbeliever, if you're sitting here today, this is the God you're currently shaking your fist at. He is powerful beyond all belief, beyond all understanding. You need to consider that His call is powerful. So we've seen His call as personal, paradigm-shifting, purposeful, and powerful. Let's quickly look at the fifth consideration. You must consider that His call is pressing. You must consider that His call is pressing. Look at 420 again. Notice the word immediately. Look at 4.22. Notice the word immediately. This adverb has the idea of at once. In military verbiage, it would be the response to the command on the double. The, the disciples answered the call with urgency. If you're here today and you feel the Lord is calling you into more ministry, it may, it may not be full-time ministry, but you, you, you feel the Lord calling you into more ministry. The, the call is urgent. It's an urgent call. That doesn't mean you should act unwisely, but it does mean you need to start considering what you need to do to obey that command. That's, I mean, you need to make sure that you're, that you're acting with urgency for the unbeliever. The question is, do you feel the call of God to turn to Him and serve Him alone? 
then don't let another moment pass. Don't let another moment pass. If you feel the call of God on your heart, don't let another moment pass, but turn to Him in saving faith and believe. I'll end the the story with a little diminutive guy named Zacchaeus. I love this story. Luke 19.10, you can, or 19.1, you can turn there if you want. You might recall a short, little, short and rich tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. He was despised. He was a man of the dark. He was unable to see Jesus as Jesus was passing through. He was passing through Jericho. So Zacchaeus did the only thing that he could do, which is kind of cool if you think about it. He climbed a tree. It's a great children's story. He climbed a tree so he could see him. Now pick up the text in 19.5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. So Jesus was walking down. And he looked up and he said to him, now, remember I said the call is personal? What's he say? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Can you imagine? I mean, what was Zacchaeus thinking? Wow. Guess what Zacchaeus did? Yeah, Zacchaeus hurried and he came down. I love that. Jesus said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. Verse 6, and he hurried and came down. That's amazing. And he received him gladly. Verse 7, and when they saw it, this is all the naysayers, when they saw it, they began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Can you believe that? That Jesus would go and associate with sinners? I can't believe that. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor, and if I have extorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. You know what's happened in Zacchaeus' heart? He's come to saving faith. He's come to saving faith. You know why Zacchaeus was in that tree? Because God was calling him. And he was willing to do anything. We're talking about a man who was a chief tax collector. We're talking about a man who was very rich. And he climbs a tree like a child. Like a child. I think that's that's a scripture. If you come to me like a child, what did Zacchaeus do? And actually, it's in the con- funny enough, it's in the context of this. If you go back and you read Luke 18, you'll find that he was, he was re- ch- children were coming to him, and he said, you have to come to me as a child. What did Zacchaeus do? He climbed a tree. What do children do? They climb a tree. I don't know, but there it is. But Zacchaeus had true faith. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that? Well, look at verse 9. I love this. This, this, is a, this is a great sermon. 
Not this, I'm sorry. This would, I'm, 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 this is a great sermon. No. This text would make a great sermon. Look, what did Jesus say to him in verse 9? Y'all say it together with me. Today. Today. When? When? Today. Salvation has come to this house. Today. Salvation has come to this house. If you're sitting here today and you don't know the Lord, today is the time of salvation. Now. It's pressing. It's pressing. If you feel the call of God pressing in on you, repent, turn to Him in saving faith. Just like Zacchaeus did. I love Jesus' words in verse 10. I don't have it on my little program, but I, I'll just turn over here. And By the way, Luke 18, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Why was he dining with sinners? Why was he dining with Zacchaeus in his house? Because the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The call is pressing even today. Still the same call. Let us go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. Pray, Lord, for your kindness upon us. I, I do pray that if there's anyone here that don't know that doesn't know you today, that they would understand the call. They would understand that you would call them to yourself. Lord, I pray that even even right now in their seats, that they would cry out to you. I pray, Lord, that they would see that the call is personal that You call them by name. That they would see that the call is paradigm shifting. It's purposeful and it's powerful. And that the call is urgent. It's pressing. Father, today is the day of salvation. And if there be men here and women who know You, and You're calling them into greater service, Lord, I pray that they would answer that call. Especially those men who feel the desire to go into further ministry, Lord, I pray that they would wisely answer that with a sense of urgency. Father, I pray, thanking You, that You've made us all fishers, fishers of men, disciple-makers. In Christ's name, amen.